Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about so many important stories and we're going to be joined by Abayomi Azikwe, who is the editor of the Pan-African Newswire. We're also going to be going over some important headlines and some stories. And also Abayomi will be joining us the second half and we'll be talking about all these great things like de-dollarization, the relationship between the U.S. and France and Africa, the Ukraine war in Africa, how those things intersect. But before we start our show, and I'm going to bring on the great comedian, historian, Justin Williams, make sure you do your patriotic duty. As Brad points out, please remember to hit the like button, share it, and subscribe. And to subscribe, you hit the subscribe and then the bell. And that's just a really easy way that you can help support this show and make it so that other people can learn about the show and the important stories that we cover. You can, of course, become members at YouTube, and also you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, and you get great bonus content. So enough of that. Let's bring on none other than Justin Williams. Hi, Justin. Hello, Katie. How are you doing? Good. You? Good, good. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me back on the show. Of course. Are you in a, an office, like a school office? Uh, I'm in Rikers Island. Oh, Rikers Island. Yeah, it does kind of look Rikers Islandish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing a show tonight. Nice. Full house. A very captive audience. Yeah, they can't leave. I, you know, I got bombed out of all the New York City comedy clubs. So now I do Rikers because the audience can't leave, you know. Right. Yeah. You kill there, right? Yeah. I mean, they kill there. You kill there. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very popular at Rikers. Yeah. Like some people are big in France. You're, you're, you're huge in Rikers. Yes, that is actually my credit. So if we could bring it on live from Rikers Island, Justin Williams, everybody. Much more forgiving audience than Sing Sing. Yes. Oh, Sing Sing. That's a tough room. Yeah, it's a really tough room. Yeah. Yeah. That's almost like Broadway Comedy Club. Yeah. That's how bad Sing Sing is. <laughs> yeah, not quite, but almost. Yeah. Well, you are also, Justin is the host of the Fraudster podcast on the Last Podcast Network. Tell us about that podcast before we jump into some news. Yeah, so we were one of the foremost anti-fraud podcasts. So if you're into frauds, cults, and other kind of financial scams, we do deep dive, funny, informational. So we split the difference between NPR and, you know, like uh, some funny podcast. We do both. Okay, we're very excited. Let's take a look at some news stories and videos. So obviously this week, Monday was a very somber day. It was the celebration, the commemoration of the coup of... Chile, the overthrow of uh, Allende and the violent coup installation of Augusto Pinochet, good friend of Henry Kissinger's. And on top of that, there's that 9-11 that we had in the U.S. of A. And Joe Biden, our president, has some really important words to say about 9-11 and its relationship to him. So let's take a look. To renew our sacred vow, never forget, never forget, we never forget. Each of us, each of those precious lives stolen too soon when evil attacked, 
Browns are in New York. And I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building. I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell. It looked so devastating because the way you could away from where you could stand. So that's moving. But there's only one problem, which is that Biden wasn't actually there. No, he was busy being like senator of Delaware at the time. Right. (laughs) I mean, I guess the guy just has so much empathy. Maybe he felt like he was there. This is something that Joe Biden kind of does that I kind of like about him is he has a little bit of a Forrest Gump syndrome. He does like place himself in historical events that he was not at at all. Yeah, that's true. My favorite one, of course, is the Nelson Mandela story where he pretends that he got arrested visiting Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And I think it turns out he waved at a motorcade or something. Yeah, he he went through a security check at an airport in South Africa, as is one's want when they're moving through a South African airport. You know, he usually gets a total pass, but CNN actually the other day did something that we don't usually see, and they explored some of his embellishments. Let's take a look at this. Has done, I don't know if it's similar things, but he's sort of told some stories that don't line up quite like this before. Yeah, this president has a, a pattern at this point of either inventing or embellishing stories about his own past, his biography. He did it three times in one speech last month alone. Uh, he claimed he had witnessed a bridge collapse in Pittsburgh when he actually showed up about six hours later. He claimed that his grandfather had died just days before he was born himself at the same hospital. In fact, his grandpa died more than a year before in a different state, not not the same hospital. Um, and uh, And he also repeated a favorite false story that I and others have debunked over and over again about a supposed conversation with an Amtrak train conductor he was friends with, who was actually deceased at the time the conversation would have had to take place. And that's well, I mean, he could have been speaking to him like his spirit, to be fair. That's one I'll defend him on. Joe Biden is a spirit medium, much like Whoopi Goldberg from Ghost. In Ghost, that's exactly what I was thinking of Ghost. I cried when I saw that movie. I'm not going to lie. It's a very moving movie. That's not all. There are some more serious ones, in, in my view. Uh, previously in his presidency, he claimed at one point he'd been arrested during a civil rights protest when, in other versions of the story, he just said an officer had taken him home uh, from a protest. He said he had visited the, the Pittsburgh synagogue where worshippers were killed in a 2018 mass shooting. In fact, he had actually spoken to the rabbi, uh, but never but never went. Um, and he, he's made a whole bunch of others, too. Uh, he said at one point, Republicans like to bring this up, he said that he used to drive a tractor trailer, he used to drive an 18 18- Never happened. The White House later clarified he used to drive a school bus at one point for as a, as a job briefly. School bus, of course, not an 18-wheeler. So whatever his intentions, whether it's, you know, foggy memory about stuff that's going on decades ago or deliberate embellishment, this is an unfortunate pattern that keeps coming up again and again with Joe Biden. You know, what's funny about Joe Biden is the one story that actually sounded the fakest that he told was actually 100 percent true and fact-checked was uh, his fight with Corn Pop. Corn Pop, a bad dude. Yeah, that turns out to be really true. There was a gang member named Corn Pop with a straight razor. Who Biden made fun of. He compared him to Esther Williams. I do like it. Yeah. And like all the children surrounding him in that video. Oh, my God. That's an amazing video. Yeah. If you've never seen Joe Biden, I guess it was the way he campaigns on like the black side of like Wilmington, Delaware, as he just tells his like gang story from like the 60s. So it's like all West Side Story. But it's all these like kids like in like 2017 or something. I think they like named a slide. After him, or diving board, or something. Oh, nice, nice. They should have named after Corn Pop. They should be the Corn Pop Pool. Yeah, I, there's like the like the Delaware Times, or whatever the local paper is wrote. There was a Corn Pop. He was a bad dude. 
he died, you know, in this year and all this other stuff. So RIP Corn Pop. That's that's what I come up with. RIP Corn Pop. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's how Biden got elected. The Corn Pop vote was a very big. It was a big vote. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Donald Trump never took on a man named Corn Pop. Right. Maybe if he had, things would have turned out differently. Yeah. This time around, at least. Well, we have some more heartwarming news. Let's take a look at Tim Gurner. He is an entrepreneur. He's a millionaire property developer and CEO of Gurner Group. He holds a net worth of $929 million. And he had some interesting thoughts about the economy. Let's hear what he had to say at the Financial Review Property Summit. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid a, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. That arrogance where people think that they deserve a living wage shouldn't be killed on the job. Some guy got to spend time with his son for the first time and (laughs) <laughs> you know, he's in his, his entire life and decided that that was maybe more important than going to Kinko's. Because <laughs> he's cocky. Yeah, because he's an arrogant asshole. Yeah, because he's a narcissist. I like, hey man, I like living in like this like new gilded age where we just have just like outrageously evil billionaires that when evil do just look into a camera and say something like that with a straight face. Say the quiet part out loud. Yeah, but we don't get any good stuff from them, though. We don't get any libraries from this bunch. They don't have the guilt that the old Gilded Age guys had, you know? The Gilded guilt. Yeah. The Gilded Age guilt. We need to bring that back, yeah. Yeah, they go, here you go. Here's the New York Public Library or whatever, you know? Well, they need to be more fearful, I think, of pitchforks and uh, guillotines. Yeah, yeah, it goes to arrogance. Uh, it's like, in record economic equality, you should be happy that the tar and feather is not sold out, you know? I like it because he's like, how hard is this guy working? We took this arrogance of the labor market. Let's take him down to UPS and see if he could make it through one shift. Seriously. And at the same time that we're learning about this, by the way, I saw a story that injuries at the tarmac at airports are at an all-time high, according to OSHA. Yeah. I'm sure this guy has no idea about that and couldn't care less. And I'm sure he thinks that if you're a valuable member of society, you don't have to work at a place like an airport. And in fact, do you want to hear even more from this guy? Do you guys love him? If we had a, like a, a plodometer, I'm sure everyone would be clapping, right? But we have even more from this guy, Tim Gurner. This is him in 2017. We are coming into a new reality where first home buyers, second home buyers, and a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That is just the reality of where we're going. So you think that young people have now got the prospect of never owning a home? Absolutely, when you're spending $40 a day on smashed avocado and coffees and not working. Uh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. 
when I had my first business when I was 19, I was in the gym at 6am in the morning and I finished at 10.30 at night and I did it seven days a week and I did it till I could afford my first home and you know, there was no discussions around could I go out for breakfast or could I go out for dinner or whatever it was, I just worked. So what you're saying is you're a bit more driven than some of the people in the current generation? Look, I wouldn't say that they're not driven, I just think that the, the media and the current environment and lifestyle changes has definitely changed the next generation. I think it's very dangerous. I think it's dangerous for the economy and I think it's definitely dangerous for their ambitions of owning property. I mean, and I think the problem with this generation is they want the three-bedroom home in Malvern and Malvern East and Pran and Alexandra and Sydney and it's just not sustainable or realistic. So what you're saying is our big cities, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane to a certain extent, are almost becoming like European cities where people may rent for life simply because they can't afford to buy in those cities. Oh, absolutely. I think we're almost there now. I mean, I think people are talking about a housing affordability crisis right now. You wait two or three years when the shock and awe of the last 12 months of no supply, prices are going to jump again and they're going to continue to move. The only thing that gives me a little bit of comfort is the fact that parents have inherited gigantic wealth. The baby boomers have gone and we have created this incredible wealth throughout the baby boomers. Everyone's talking about... Yeah, who's we? Yeah, who's we? What's this guy? What's this guy, 39? Yeah. How old is he? He's, let's see, he was 34 in 2016. Yeah. So someone good at math can tell me exactly how old he is. He's like 42 or something. Affordability and housing crises and unaffordability. The realistic fact is there is this incredible amount of wealth that has been created and is sitting with the baby boomers that will be passed down. There is going to be a transition of wealth at a very in the next 20 to 30 years, which will see a lot of these people be able to buy their own home. But I think some sort of measure now, some sort of government incentive to encourage parents to be able to pass down money earlier, I think would be a great thing. What is that? Like uh, in state tax? What do, what do you think he's thinking of? What kind of incentive to let parents pass down money earlier? An inheritance tax. I like how he does argue like this baby boomer idea that, uh, that his own generation is not working hard because what I see is a lot of people working 40 hours a week and then having an OnlyFans and then like shaking their butt on TikTok for like donations. It's like, <laughs> like when, when is anybody, what is, what is off time these days? Yeah. And uh, getting avocado toast. Yeah. You're getting your avocado toast. And it's like, dude, if we were all eating avocados, we would not have the obesity crisis that we have in this country. Like, you think that's what people are eating? People are eating uh, pork and beans. And I, I just like people that are complete disconnected from, from reality. I can't speak to Australia's housing market, but I can say uh, it is funny seeing how much people are paying to live in some objectively hilarious suburbs. He talks about how he worked really hard and he'd go to the gym because I think his business started as a gym. I'm reading an article at an Australian newspaper. It all began with a humble gym in the Melbourne suburb of Elwood when Mr. Gurner was just 19 years old. I saw an opportunity and took over the lease, he told news.com.au. I didn't even know what I was doing, to be totally honest, but it was a really good opportunity, good spot. His grandfather gave him $34,000 to kickstart the project, and Mr. Gurner spent four weeks renovating the space while getting his gym license by correspondence. Within six months, the place was pumping. Yeah, he got $35,000. Yeah. From his grandfather. In the suburbs of one of the hottest growing markets. It's like, yeah, it's, I like how people never consider the way they've been helped or just like good luck or good fortune. Right. It's all grit. Yeah. It, it was all because you went to the gym early one morning, which, which produces nothing for the economy. Yeah. So ridiculous. I like, yeah, I just like rich people. They're just like kind of interesting because they don't, there's no, I like living in the era of no shame. shame. The shameless rich. Yeah, I agree. Also, if you, if you started a, with the gym, 
in Melbourne, Australia, stop trying to give me Warren Buffett level advice on the economy. I don't want to hear about what you think about the global labor market. That's true. Yeah. Whoever the CEO of like Vanguard funds, I want to hear from them. Yeah. <laughs> not Gold Jim. Yeah. yeah. Not, not the kangaroo CrossFit man. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That would be really cute. A CrossFit kangaroo. Apologize to any Australian people. That, that almost comes across as a slur. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we have some more. I can't believe they said that out loud. Rich people clips. Let's take a look at this clip from, of course, I believe it was CNBC. No, Fox News. Sorry, my bad. Fox News. Oh, Let's hear what Art Laffer had to say. Uh, once these IRS agents are skilled and know how to do it, they'll hire the very best of those IRS agents to then advise them. And this is exactly what Morgenthau complained about in the 1930s when the income tax rates were very, very high. Right now, the, IR the rich have the best tax people they can around the place by far. They have the best right now. And by the way, this guy's an economist and author and was part of Reagan's Economic Policy Advisory Board. Last thing here is the rich know how to get around this because they're really highly sensitized, incentivized to get around it. They are the ones that the IRS is always after. And when, when you think about it, if you were to able to get them and corner them and slam them hard, these are the very people, David, that make our economy so much better than any other economy in the world. So it's funny. It's like it almost sounds like he's being critical of the rich and saying that they need to cheat to get out of paying taxes. And he kind of says that, but then he's like, well, don't worry, because these are the best people on earth, so we can't actually force them to not cheat. So let's let's take a look. The rich aren't just rich. These are the most productive, most high-performing developers and incentivizers and in creators ever in the world. That's why America is the greatest nation on earth, is because of these rich people. They are the reason for us being great. And anything that would do to cause them to diminish their efforts will diminish the economy and diminish our prosperity for as far as the eye can see. That's my story, David, and I'm going to stick <laughs> with it. You're going to stick to it. Yeah. So... No love for the working man, right? Not, not that I can go on any street in America and find somebody that can redo my drywall. Yeah, no, that, that, that's, that person's not great. It's like whoever can, like, I don't know, have the time and money to fill out a bunch of forms. Yeah, like, it's kind of impressive that he doesn't try to hide that, I thought, or that they cheat. Yeah, he gives, like, the devastating argument. But again, when it's on Fox, do you think he was like, man, this sounds bad? But then he's like, but wait, I'm on Fox. So what I mean is that this is good. Yeah, that's a good question. Like if he was doing it, like if he just threw that thing in at the end about how they're the best people in the world and really productive. Yeah. When I think of like Elon Musk, when I see him like uh, tweeting out conspiracy theories on Twitter, I go, you know, that is our brightest and most productive citizen. <laughs> it's just like a guy, it's a guy high on marijuana. It's like name it, going to name another child Exxon Geiger counter or something like that. Right. Oh my God. It's like, it's like you can meet someone like that on the subway. Anyway, but uh, I tell you what. Uh, I, I like these guys. I also like the, uh, I have a conservative friends that also think that Biden hiring more IRS agents means they're going to be auditing middle-class people. That's another thing I like hearing, which is like, yeah, they're really worried about your $200 write-off and not the secret accounts of the Cayman Islands. Right. If that does happen, make sure you let us know, fam. Yeah. We'll do an expose on it. The Biden agents. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, recent frauds have you exposed, by the way? We just did a three-part series on the Nation of Islam. And then we just did a two-part series on Jin Shah from the real-life uh, Housewives of Salt Lake City. So what's the fraud there? 
she had like an amazing like boiler room, like this corporate culture of just like saying stuff. So she was like waterboarding employees and it was like multi-level marketing plus like pyramid scheme, like that kind of stuff. So it was very nice. And Nation of Islam? The Nation of Islam is a pyramid scheme. It's, it's, uh, the Nation of Islam is Scientology for black people. Okay. Yeah. So what makes it like that? What makes it a pyramid scheme? Because all the all the money goes up to a single personality, whether it's Elijah Muhammad and then later on Louis Farrakhan. And so, yeah, all the money goes up. Or those guys that are selling bean pies are kicking all that money up to Farrakhan. They also have to purchase the newspapers that they're selling from the Nation of Islam. Oh, no. Yeah. That's no good. And did they also kill, uh, perhaps, uh, Malcolm X? They do. They have a record of uh, killing dissenters. So that's also another part, because you have to protect the Khan, like any criminal operation. The Farrah Khan. Mm, I like it. I just did there. Yeah. Well, Justin, where can people find you? Because this has been really fun. Yeah, go on Instagram. And if you put on Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy, Justin Williams comedy Instagram, you follow me there. If you go to justinwilliamscounty.com, you can see my upcoming uh, tour dates. And if you send me an email, I'll come to your house. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate you having me back. Thanks for coming on. Bye, Justin. So don't go anywhere, guys, because we are going to keep the show going. We are so excited to bring on our next guest. Now, remember, do take this opportunity to like the stream, to subscribe to the stream, to share the stream. And we're going to be bringing on Aboyami Azikuye who is going to talk about so many interesting things and so many important stories that get neglected by the media, ranging from BRICS to uh, the African Union joining G20 and the relationship between the proxy war in Ukraine and the neocolonialism of Africa. So without any further ado, let's bring on uh, Bayomi. Hi, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So there's so much we could talk about because you, of course, do cover, uh, you know, your newsletter is called uh, Pan-African Newswire. So you are an expert in many things, Africa. I guess wanted to know where you wanted to start. What's What do you think the most important story is? We could talk about BRICS. We could talk about the climate summit, talk about Niger, Gabon. What's the most exciting of those to you? You're right. There's so much going on uh, geopolitically. We're looking right now at the uh, situation in Libya uh, in regard to the flooding that is taking place there where 10,000 people, they say, are unaccounted for and approximately 2,000 or more are confirmed dead. And the tragedy of it is that the United States and NATO destroyed the country 12 years ago. Today, there's no centralized effective government in the country, which used to be the most prosperous nation state on the African continent. And who do you talk to in regard to providing uh, humanitarian assistance? And the whole question of what's happening in Morocco and what's happening in Libya feeds into a broader question about the Africa Climate Summit that was held last week in Nairobi, Kenya. The problem uh, is that the countries of the West, who are the largest contributors to greenhouse gas emissions and other pollutants, uh, want to veto every resolution, every proposal uh, that uh, the uh, countries of the Global South put forward uh, to curb uh, these uh, problems, which are becoming more and more uh, aggravated uh, on a weekly and monthly basis. So there's a lot we can discuss. 
All of it is, in my opinion, is related in some way or the other. Uh, we could talk about the war in Ukraine and how that impacts the food deficits that are going on right now in East Africa and other parts of the continent and other parts of the world, West Asia. And we have an administration, unfortunately, uh, right now that is not focusing on anything uh, that is allowing all of these uh, problems to uh, mount. And it's the people, you know, the ordinary people, the working people, middle-class people, poor people, who in fact are the ones that are suffering from all of these uh, maladies. Right. Yeah. So can you talk about, because we often do talk about the proxy war in Ukraine on the show, but we haven't sufficiently explored its impact on Africa. So can you talk about that, please? Yes. Uh, it's quite interesting that we've had uh, several coups in the West Africa region over the last three years. And the majority of them uh, have uh, criticized France, the former colonial power, whether it's in uh, Guinea, Conakry, uh, Mali, or in Burkina Faso, and now in Gabon. Although Gabon has not come out directly, the new leadership and criticized uh, France to the extent that Burkina Faso and Mali has. But it just illustrates that the so-called war on terror uh, has worsened the security situation in West Africa. Uh, the French claim they went to Mali a decade ago to fight against the insurgents, the Islamic insurgent organizations that were causing problems in the north and the central part of the country. Yet over that time period, and even the military forces who were trained by France and by the United States are now saying that they are responsible uh, for the deteriorating security situation uh, in Mali and in Burkina Faso and other countries. This is really significant because these same countries, whether they're the military uh, regimes that were trained and collaborated with the United States and France, or uh, whether it is the masses of people who have not benefited at all from the French and, U and U.S. neocolonial system, are looking towards Russia uh, as an assistance uh, in terms of security issues and economic issues as well. So I think the whole uh, posture of the government in Washington, uh, in the U.K., and in Paris and Brussels is really alienating uh, huge numbers of people uh, throughout the world. Now, they may say that Russia is isolated, China is isolated, Iran is isolated, uh, the countries, uh, the military uh, governments in West Africa are isolated. However, they are participating in some of the most profound uh, diplomatic uh, maneuvers and efforts that are taking place globally. For example, the uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa plus summit that was held just recently in South Africa, where they expanded BRICS by six nations and many other countries that want to join. Uh, France attempted to invite itself, and they were disinvited uh, to the summit. Awkward. It's really amazing what's going on. And then Biden, he goes to the G20 in New Delhi in India, and he's photographed shaking hands with uh, Nahandra Modi and many other leaders around the world, whether it's the uh, prince of uh, Saudi Arabia, who he had said was a pariah several years ago, uh, in an effort uh, to shore up the U.S. Uh, diplomatic efforts uh, internationally. But I think, unfortunately, it's the people here in this country who are, who are, who are losing out. 
uh, on this whole uh, process because you see that uh, prices are still going up for fuel, for rents, for mortgages, for automobiles, uh, educational costs, uh, healthcare costs, and yet at the same time, the administration is being championed uh, in regard to Bidenomics for the low uh, unemployment rate uh, for many other things uh, that may or may not uh, exist. So I think it's a global problem. We have to look at this not only on a local level, but to see how the local uh, crises impacts the broader international uh, crisis of political economy and uh, insecurity. And that is going on um, to an ever greater degree uh, on a daily basis. And can you talk about the significance of the African Union being admitted to the G20 and also the expansion of BRICS? Yes, the uh, African Union has been invited at the aegis of the government in India to join as a bloc the uh, G20. On the surface of it, it looks good, but at the same time, there are many contradictions within the uh, G20. Uh, some of these same countries are loggerheads uh, with the U.S. and other Western European countries over uh, the whole question of uh, who should be responsible uh, for climate change and the impact of uh, El Nino. If we look at the uh, floods, if we look at the other extreme uh, weather events that are taking place uh, in North Africa and East Africa, Southern Africa, uh, and when these issues are raised at the United Nations Climate Summit every year, uh, whether it's John Kerry uh, from the United States or others uh, from uh, Western Europe, uh, they always attempt to minimize their role and at the same time um, place uh, further burdens on people uh, in the global south. And this is not a new pledge that was made at the um, recent uh, Africa Climate Summit. Uh, of, I believe, $25 billion. What happened to the $100 billion that was pledged uh, several years ago uh, that has not been delivered on? Uh, President Tabo, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who, was a, um, who is now the president of uh, South Africa, when he visited the United States last uh, year, he requested several billion dollars to assist South Africa in making the transition uh, from um, fossil fuels to more efficient, uh, green, and environmental-friendly uh, uh, energy sources. And that has not happened. So I think it's important that the African Union was invited. It shows, it illustrates this whole Cold War that's going on right now, uh, where you have Russia, uh, China, uh, that has uh, made huge inroads into the African continent uh, in regard to uh, development projects, uh, military assistance, uh, food assistance, and the United States, which is losing ground uh, diplomatically. So they have to concede on some questions in an effort to try to sway India, uh, South Africa, even Vietnam, uh, which uh, the United States was at war against uh, some 50 years ago, uh, back into some type of diplomatic foe uh, with Washington. So I think uh, it's a very interesting period that we're living in, but it's a very dangerous period as well. Dangerous, how so? Well, it's dangerous because uh, if you look at Ukraine, for example, uh, these are two nuclear powers that are engaged in a proxy war. You have uh, the Russian Federation, uh, which has nuclear weapons. You have the United States, which has nuclear weapons. 
and you have the NATO countries which are aligned to the United States. So it's a very dangerous situation because the United States is committed, uh, at least uh, in, in, in public, they're committed to some type of victory or defeat of the Russian Federation in Ukraine in order to further expand the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Russia is viewing this as a war to maintain its own uh, sovereignty, and its own regional uh, influence uh, in Eastern Europe and, and in also in uh, West Asia. So that's why it's very dangerous. And I think that an agreement could have been reached uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, there were talks in Minsk uh, at the beginning of the uh, what the Russians call the special military operation and what the West calls the invasion of Ukraine. And there was also additional talks in uh, Turkey. And the reports that I've received is that uh, the United States was responsible for there not being an agreement. Uh, there's also, there was also the Minsk Agreement, one and two, several years ago, uh, which was designed to prevent uh, military conflict that we're faced with uh, right now in uh, Ukraine and also in Russia as we speak. I believe that's why it's dangerous. And the fact that uh, the United States is committed to alienating and isolating the Russian Federation uh, is also dangerous because Russia is not going to uh, sit idly by and allow itself to be isolated. And that's why you see them moving uh, diplomatically uh, in regard to the uh, Russia-Africa summit, uh, their involvement in BRICS, and uh, their involvement in other international bodies uh, in order to avoid uh, the attempted isolation uh, by Washington. What about the de-dollarization issue? It seems like there are different elements of BRICS who feel differently about that. Yes, I don't think it will take place overnight, but the fact that it's being raised by governments that represent, some say less than half, some say perhaps more than half of the world's population is quite significant. Because the United States, through its dollar, uh, has been able to control and manipulate global finance uh, through the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and other financial institutions, uh, through the petroleum industry, their dominance. I think uh, just the notion of moving away uh, from reliance on the dollar as the international currency of choice is a threat uh, to the United States uh, hegemony. And as I said, perhaps it won't happen overnight, uh, it may take years, it may even take decades, but if things continue the way they are right now, uh, it could very well be a reality sooner than what we think. What kind of impact would that have, do you think? Clearly, it would make the United States weaker economically. Uh, they would not be able to carry on uh, what they do domestically as well as internationally. Uh, we can look right now and see uh, that the deficit of the United States, and it's not talked about that much in the mainstream media or the corporate media, the deficit in this country is, is rising exponentially. A lot of it has to do uh, with the uh, inflation and also uh, the Pentagon budget. Just think about the money that's being spent to continue uh, the war in Ukraine. It's astronomical. And we had the Secretary of State who went to uh, Ukraine a few days ago and pledged even more money and perhaps called for the uh, resignation or the firing of the Minister of Defense in Ukraine. And perhaps he warned them about the continuing corruption that's going on 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the supply of arms and military expenditures in Ukraine. There was an article even in the New York Times on Sunday talking about an arms dealer based in Florida uh, who had, in fact, been indicted before, about 15 years ago, by the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Attorney Generals of the United States, the Justice Department. And he's a key player in the purchase and supply of arms uh, by the United States to Ukraine. Obviously, there's a lot of corruption that's going on. It continues to go on. And it's the taxpayers here in the United States uh, that are paying those bills. So BRICS went from being Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa to now Argentina, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, and the Arab Republic of Egypt. So now it's like BRICS, UASA, doesn't it doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. But um, what are you most curious about, or what do you think will be the most interesting thing to come out of this expansion? There's the uh, new development bank that's headed by uh, the former Brazilian president, uh, Dilma Rousseff. And they are working very hard to try to build alternatives uh, to the Western-dominated financial system. There's also other countries that are interested in joining BRICS. And it seems to be committed uh, to economic development in what is called now the Global South. Uh, many Africa, Asia, South America, the Caribbean, the Asia Pacific, and in alliance with the Russian Federation, which is quite interesting as well, because the way the uh, NATO countries are treating the Russian Federation, it is as if they are part of the Global South. Uh, they've excluded them, for example, from the G8. It used to be the G8. Now it's the G7 again. And they're engaging in an economic blockade of the Russian Federation. These are the same tactics that, that they've used against Cuba, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Iran, and many other countries, China. So it's quite interesting that um, they see Russia as part of the oppressed nations, the uh, people who have historically uh, been exploited and oppressed uh, by Western Europe and North America. You, during a recent interview, said that France is at war with Africa. So can you just give some of examples of where that's happening and what this war looks like? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.